Welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich, financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. Join us as we share the tools and insight that can help you take control of your money and your life. Because we believe life's greatest returns are realized when you invest beyond your money. And welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Dukovich. I'm a retirement income certified professional, a certified plan fiduciary advisor, and an associate vice president financial advisor with RBC Wealth Management. For those of you who've tuned in before, welcome back. But for anyone that's listening for the first time, this podcast is designed to help you take control. And we do that by not only discussing financial topics that are timely and relevant and applicable to your own wealth plans, but we also discuss important topics that go beyond your money. And in today's podcast, Mike is going to dive into his psychology background. This is to help explain several concepts dealing with investor biases. I'm Patrice Sikora. And as Mike has discussed before, too often we as human beings make investments based on emotional, yes, sometimes irrational thought processes. And as a result, we may not always end up with the best outcomes. It is simply human nature to react to these common investor problems in a way that makes us feel comfortable and, yes, part of a larger group. That's right. And, and my goal today is to explain several of these biases so that listeners will be able to recognize why they are making certain decisions. And hopefully, by understanding some of these psychological factors that go into those decisions, it will allow our listeners to make better decisions with regards to their own wealth plan in the long term. Now, Mike, you have identified several biases that can influence investing choices. As we've been saying here, we are social beings. So let's start with the herd, the crowd, actually what some might call FOMO, the fear of missing out. Absolutely. And, and before we begin, Patrice, I, I have to admit, you know, with my psychology background, this is something that I really find entertaining and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to kind of geek out a little bit here. So hopefully you can bear with me and hopefully the I'll listeners it. enjoy it as well. But yes, the, the first bias we're going to talk about is, is called herding. And the easiest way to conceptualize this is if you think about a herd of cattle or a herd of sheep where, you know, when, when one moves, all the other ones move with it. And, and this is very uh, prevalent in human nature as well, where we want to follow the crowd. Mm -hmm. and the reason is because we as human beings fear making mistakes or, or missing opportunities because we don't tend to go with the crowd. And, and we tend to do what everyone else is doing because that's comfortable and there's comfort in numbers. And if, if, if you happen to act out against the crowd, then you look like you're going out on your own and that is uncomfortable. Right. And in reality, when you are looking at financial hurting, we'll call it, that tends to lead to what are called bubbles. Okay. And, and history has shown us that there, that many times as an investor, it can make more sense to go against the crowd. Whereas, you know, everyone that's buying the same thing, or if everyone is selling the same thing, that tends to lead to adverse situations. And, and there are there are many, many examples throughout history. I mean, the the tulip mania is really the first one in, in, in the 1600s. In, in the early 2000s, we had the dot-com bubble, right, where everyone was buying technology and the internet. And, you know, there were companies that weren't even making money yet that were publicly traded. Right, and people, right. were, people were trying to buy those stocks. That didn't end well. More recently, 2008, 
we had that the housing bubble right. that led to the financial crisis, right? Everyone okay. thought that their the real estate could never drop in price. Okay. Um, let's stop right here though. You mentioned sure. tulip mania, tulip mania. What, what is that? That you said back in the 1600s. Yeah. Sorry. Tulip mania is probably something that not a lot of people, uh, I'll call it the average, um, person even knows about. This is definitely a, a financial concept here, but tulip mania, uh, was, was in the 17th century back in Netherlands, I believe. And this was widely considered the first major financial bubble. Okay. Yeah. And tulip we're, we're talking about the flowers. Okay. okay. All of a sudden, tulips started to increase in price. Investors started to madly purchase these things. And, and when, when the herd, when people started all doing this at the same time, it pushed the prices to unprecedented highs. Okay. The average price of a, of a single flower at that time ended up exceeding the annual income for an individual. Uh, and in some cases, they became so expensive that the cost of a, of a single flower or bulb exceeded that of an average home. That's ridiculous. Right? It was absolutely absurd. And, and there was no fundamental reason for that price increase. It was just literally hurting and, and, and a creation of a bubble. Well, eventually, as we all know, what usually happens with these things, the price collapsed. And just about every investor out there went bankrupt, including mm -hmm. in many cases, the average investor who just jumped onto this bandwagon and, and in many cases too late and they, and they lost everything. And so tulip mania, when we look back in history was really the first financial bubble. And, and we, we can learn a lot of lessons from this and, and that, you know, there's, there's typically cycles of a bubble where, where people start to do the same thing. There becomes this irrational bias in the group mentality and that mob mentality. And, and, and that tends to push the price of an asset to an unsustainable level. And eventually it, that price collapses and, and the bubble bursts, so to speak. So, and we did see that in the dot-com bubble. You're absolutely right. And the housing implosion there in the financial crisis of 2008, again, people don't learn. People don't learn. And, and again, you know, they, they don't want to miss out, right? If, if, right. They, if they see that their neighbors are all doing the same thing or all buying the same thing, then they don't want to be the, that lone wolf over there not doing it, right? Because it's uncomfortable doing something on your own when the masses are doing something that's completely different. And what about mass media too? You mentioned mass Well, media. Yeah. I was just going to mention that, you know, the 24-hour the news cycle, the, the, the mass media, the, all the social platforms that we're now on, makes it extremely easy for, for these types of irrational hurting behaviors to take place. I mean, we're seeing it almost on an everyday scale now where, where all of a sudden one tweet or one social media post just kind of drives everyone towards a certain product or a certain company or an investment or a strategy. And, you know, perhaps drives that price up astronomically very quickly. Well, guess what? When, when prices tend to skyrocket like that, and it's not based off of a fundamental reason, then that, that price tends to be irrationally inflated. And, and ultimately, at some point, there's a good chance that that price will plummet. And whoever's kind of left holding the bag, so to speak, is not going to end up with a favorable result. That's right. And I would think most retail investors are getting in there and they think, I'm going to hold this. I'm going to watch. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be on top of everything. But they don't have the resources that the actual professional traders have. And they're going to get it later. 
You're absolutely right. You know, the average investor sometimes, you know, unfortunately, Wall Street refers to the average, we call it the retail investor, you know, just, you know, us, right, my clients, they, they refer to them as the retail investor. But one of the one of the nicknames that Wall Street has for that retail investor is dumb money. <laughs> right. And, and the idea oh, well. here is smart money which is obviously opposite, they tend to refer to institutional investors, right? The big hedge funds, the big money managers, they tend to refer to them as smart money because they have access and resources to numbers, to research, to people, to things that we don't have access to as, as a typical retail um, dumb money type of investor. And so it's just, it's, it's very difficult to compete. And when you see these herding issues, these bubble issues. It's very difficult to make the right decisions on when to get in and when to get out. It's it's nearly impossible. Is there one takeaway from this that you want to leave listeners with? Absolutely. It's for everything, right? It's important to assess investments and products or strategies or whatever you're thinking about investing in as it pertains as it pertains to your own wealth plan. Okay, it might be suitable for a neighbor or friend to do it, but it might not be suitable for you and what you're trying to accomplish. You always have to consider your own risk parameters, your own investment style, right? Your own wealth plan. You have to consider what you are trying to do when you're trying to figure out if an investment is right for you. All right. So we see the market going up and people say the market's going up. Yes, we're going to get into the market now because it's going up. And... <laughs> yeah, what you're referring to is our second uh, bias that we're going to talk about, and that's availability bias. And, and to your point, this is when people are strongly influenced by what is most relevant. So in your in your example there, if the market's going up, it's going up. We tend to think that it will always go up because that's what we have seen. That's what's most recent. Okay, and and it, it's also on the flip side. Right. If the right. market is going down, if we, we've had a couple of really bad weeks in the market and the market is tanking, we tend to think that that's going to continue because not only is it recent, but another component of availability bias is also things that are traumatic. And, and so you kind of have when the market's going down, you have two things that, you're, that are going against you. You have a recent traumatic event. And, and when we're in that situation, people tend to think that it's going to continue. The perception is when it's going down, it will continue to go down. And ultimately what happens in these situations, many times the average investor tends to get scared and they tend to pull money out when the market's going down. And, and ultimately this can lead to investors missing some of the biggest up days right. as a result, right? If, if, they, if they give in to their irrational behavior, their rational fear, I should say, there's a great chance that if they move their money out of those investments, they're, they're going to miss the upswing. Now, you mentioned 2008 before the housing bubble, the financial mm -hmm. crisis. The market tanked then. I mean, it tanked 37% decline in the S&P 500. What happened then? You know, this is what you're talking about. It reminds me of a great study. Um, there, there's a well-known investment firm that did a study, and this is in 2010, okay, where they reached out to the average investor and they asked them about 2009. So again, the year after that huge decline, that 37% decline. And they said, okay, you remember 2008, correct? And they said, yes. And it was a pretty bad time. And they said, oh, it was terrible, right? Well, they asked these investors, what happened in 2009? And two thirds of the investors thought that 2009 was down, okay? Right. They thought that 2008 was so bad, it just snowballed and it continued in 2009. Well, 
in reality, 2009 was a phenomenal year for the S&P. It was up over 25%, right? And so what happened is people were rationally internalized something that just happened. And in that case, not only did it just happen, it was recent, but it was also traumatic. And, and so people-, people Yeah, people got hurt in that. Really bad, right? And, and, and so ultimately people just assumed and they kind of internalized it and it was irrational, but they thought that 2009 was down as well. And, and it's just, it, it, it just wasn't so. What's our takeaway here? Takeaway here. Well, I would say, you know, while dramatic market events tend to leave lasting impressions, okay, it's important to take recent events for, for what they're worth. And that's simply a snapshot in time. And so when I'm managing money or I'm working with a client, I try to emphasize that we want to recognize that what's going on lately does not necessarily correlate to what's going to happen in the future. You know, you, you always hear these disclosures on financial topics that past performance is not indicative of future results. This is exactly that. Because it has recently happened doesn't mean that it's going to continue to happen in the future. All right. Speaking of this, the losses that we saw in 2008, that hurt. That really hurt. Which brings us to the next thought here, loss aversion. Yeah, this is one of those investor biases that really affect people in, in their decision making. And, and this is a psychological issue, right? Where, where people, we as human beings, we associate the pain from a loss much more, it's much more intense than, than the reward that we feel from a gain. I did okay? not and, know that. That's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And in, psycho you know, in psychology, there are studies, there are dozens of studies that actually show that the pain of loss is almost twice as strong as the reward that's fell from a gain. And that ends up being the driving factor in a lot of our uh, decision-making processes. We invest out of fear? Many times we do. Typically, and kind of like what we were just talking about here, where you know, if the market's going down, you think it's going to continue to go down. And, and typically, fear of the markets and where they're going to go, that tends to drive investors into safe havens and, and like cash. And, and, and again, just like we last talked about, when the market's going down, typically that could possibly present great long-term buying opportunities. Exactly. And, and, and if, if you're worried about losing more, again, because that, that fear, that loss aversion is so much more powerful than that of the potential gain, they tend to lean on that when they're making those decisions. It ends up being you know, probably the wrong decision to make, the opposite decision to make. Going to cash when the market is down that, that usually doesn't work out well. Usually that's when you want to be putting cash to work. Okay. All right. and, and we saw this recently, Patrice, in, in, in the spring of 2020 during, you know, the COVID pandemic. Oh, right, when, right. In March, when, especially. Yeah. Um, when we didn't really know what was happening and we were at the beginning of, it was a life-changing situation, obviously for all of us, but with regards to the markets, the sell-off. Okay. Yes. We had some pretty dramatic price movements back then. And, and what happened is safe haven assets, we call them like cash or money markets, CD sometimes, you know, these were paying extremely low interest rates. They were paying nothing, right? They were paying Absolutely. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people were really frustrated with that, right? Because, you know, the, the historical, we'll call it the saver, the safe saver who, who were perhaps, um, you know, rolling CDs or, or they had just simply enjoyed having their money in their savings accounts, making mm -hmm. a couple percent where well, you're not getting that anymore. The extreme low interest rate environment, you're basically getting peanuts. I, I sometimes refer to it as dead money that you have in your savings account. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually that's, that's very true. 
if you think about it, sure. You know, I, 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 I sometimes joke, but I have some clients that say, well, I know my money's safe if it's in the savings account. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, well, if you think about it, you are safe. You're losing money safely. <laughs> That's right. Because, you know, in, in a historical low interest rate environment, the the inflation numbers are are three, four times or, or more what you're making in, in the form of an interest rate. And so with you, when you factor in the real rate of return when, with inflation, you're losing money. And so sure, Mr. And Mrs. Client, you're losing money safely. I like, that. I like that. So, you know, that's why I always say when we're talking about emergency accounts with my clients, you want to have something there. You want to have money that's ATM ready, I call it, where you can get it in case the house blow, you know, the roof blows off or you need a new car or whatever, that emergency bucket. But you never want to have so much money in there that you're actually losing money on a, on a large portion of your assets. You want to have that target number. And we work with clients all the time to figure out what that target emergency amount is. But you have to realize that it's, it's dead money at this point in current interest rate environments. When, when, the, when the rates go up, that might be different. But as it is right now, you, you don't want to have too much in, in, that, in that bucket. And, and what we saw in, in, in early 2020, during the early COVID sell-off, people went to cash, right? People, people panicked, people freaked out, and they got out of the market. And that fear caused investors to, to behave irrationally, and, and they made these bad decisions. And, and, and ultimately, you know, the opportunity cost was, was dramatic because we saw a very quick V-shaped recovery. And if you stayed in, you made your money back pretty quickly and, and you, you soared to all-time new highs more than likely. And, uh, but if you got out, the opportunity to, to make that money back wasn't there. And I wonder if you got out, you were so afraid, were you willing to even get back in when things turned around or were you still thinking, oh, this is, this is not it. This is not it yet. That's it. And, and you know, that kind of goes back to that last bias we were talking about, the, the, the availability bias. You, you just assumed that the market was going to continue to tank. And you were, you were so afraid that you were going to put money in and it would continue to go down that you didn't do it. And so a lot of people that got out at that point in time never got back in. Um, I've seen people who are still not back in. And it's, uh, it's, it's, that's one of the reasons why it always makes sense to consult with a financial advisor or a professional. Because when you, when you have those discussions, those rational discussions that are based off of math, right? That are based off of the math of, of the market and the economy and your own wealth plan versus your, your emotion and your irrationally charged emotional fears, um, you tend to make better decisions. And, and I see this too, where, where when people are buying or trading securities or stocks, for example, we'll talk about that. People, a lot of times tend to hold a stock for too long or, or they tend to sell too early because mm -hmm. they're afraid of what, what could happen if they make the wrong decision. And that fear is what drives them versus the math. All right. So the takeaway here, that math. Important, right? And, and so when I'm dealing with wealth plans or, or portfolios, diver diversification helps. That's a, one reason why it's important to be diversified because when the market is doing things that you're uncomfortable with, if you're diversified, typically that means that your ride is a little smoother, right. okay? You're not, you're not on that, uh, that literal roller coaster of the market. If you're diversified, you have some things that are doing well while other things are not. And eventually that, that tends to smooth out the ride. So diversification helps, but also just putting the rational mathematical investment strategies in place and having those discussions 
with an advisor or a professional, having, having that plan in place can help remove the irrational emotional behaviors that are, that are based on fear and, and loss uh, aversion. We uh, are going to talk about marshmallows right now. I love this study. <laughs> Tell me about the marshmallow study. Yeah, so the marshmallow study. So this is um, a Stanford study back in the 60s and 70s. And, and it, this highlights the next bias, and, and that's present bias, okay, where mm -hmm. the, the quick definition is, is, is that we as human beings, we tend to overvalue the immediate reward that we're going to get right now at the expense of long-term goals or long-term rewards that we're going to get in the future. Basically, and so, we don't have any patience. No patience, okay. right? And we, we don't have the, the, the wherewithal to, to basically forego current rewards mm -hmm. so that we can make sure that we are taken care of in the future. And, and that's the, this marshmallow study that you referenced. This is one of my favorites. If you look this up on the internet, you can see videos of it, but it's from the late 60s, um, early 70s back in Stanford. And, and, and this is where they had uh, a bunch of kids, young kids, where they would put marshmallows in front of them, single marshmallow. And they would instruct the child that they could eat it now if they wanted to, or if they could wait and not eat the marshmallow for a period of like 15 minutes, I believe it was, that they would receive a second marshmallow. <laughs> okay, so eat it now, or if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get another one. And so, and I would encourage you to look this up. Some of the kids got pretty creative in, in how they were trying to find ways to distract themselves. I mean, kids were pounding their head on the table. They were rolling around on the floor. They were trying to sit on their hands. It was very, very entertaining. But in the end, only about a third of the kids were able to delay the, the, the gratification long enough to receive that second marshmallow. Wow. And so these kids were old enough to understand what they would get if they could wait but they just couldn't do it. And, and again, a great study. It's cute. It's fun to watch, but this is real. This is something that the human adult has yeah. a difficult time with that delayed gratification where we would much rather have something now than, than more of something later. And this is evolutionary, right? This goes back to when we were trying to gather or, or hunt for food caves, where if you could eat now you ate, but if, you know, you didn't have the foresight to look ahead and see, all right, well, I need to save things for the future. Right. And when we, when we kind of like translate this into the world of finance, people are emotionally, they, they find it more emotionally rewarding to buy something now or to, to invest in something right now than to save for the future or to, to do their due diligence and think about how that might uh, impact their, their long-term strategy. And, and honestly, Patrice, this is one of the reasons why retirement savings are, the rates of retirement savings are so bad in the US right now. We're simply just not saving enough to pay for retirement. Well, taking money out of your paycheck before you even see it for that, let's say it's a 401k. To me, that was the way to do it. You mm -hmm. don't see it. You don't feel it. You look at your account later on, your statement, you say, wow, that's nice. And there's some gratification right there. Absolutely. Right. You know, that out of sight, out of mind, you know, that's one of the, the key reasons why companies who are offering 401ks or qualified retirement plans, one of the reasons why they're putting these together is to help the, the employee because we're human beings. And if we didn't have that, you know, I'll take it out of your control and, and push it into your future. If we didn't have that kind of that, that um, encouragement from the, from the qualified plan, more than likely we're spending that money. Well, they don't call it shopping therapy for nothing. That's right. And so, 
you know, again, in most cases that I, that when I'm working with a client or, or working with a company that's putting a plan in place, if you can encourage a participant to at least put something in, you know, 5% or 10% or whatever it happens to whatever you need to put in, at least to capture a full employer match, that's the bare minimum you want to consider. You, you don't miss that money. You don't actually ever get control of it in your pocket or in your checkbook. And so you don't, you're not encouraged to spend it, but you're right. When you, when you look at your annual statement or you fast forward five, 10 years down the line, and then you look at it, well, guess what? Those little dollars that you were putting in here and there really start to a snowball and it starts to amass into something that's meaningful. And obviously we're, we're forgoing that, that something we could have purchased right then and there that more than likely would have very little impact on your life. And we've pushed it into the future, into something that is much more impactful. Mike, have there been any studies done that show whether or not saving a percentage, not seeing the dollar amount, but the percentage makes it easier to save? Well, a lot of people have a, a very difficult time kind of turning percentages into dollars. Right. right. The average, the average investor, the average person um, with regards to finance, they tend to think in dollars, right? So if, if you right. say that you're going to save $500 out of your pay, that, that's a big amount. You know, yeah. people understand what $500 is, but if you say, well, I'm going to put away 6%, they're like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't sound, you know, exactly. all that, all that. And, and that 6% could equate to $500 for that individual. So in many cases, that's why we use percentages because when you start talking dollars and cents, people start to get a little hesitant. Um, so yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons why people use percentages with regards to encouraging people to save. All Absolutely. right. So the, that's the a great point. Here, the takeaway here then. Well, planning for the future is obviously critical into a long-term investment strategy and to a successful one. And, and that might involve foregoing things that provide for immediate gratification in return for greater future outcomes. So the, the, the important thing here is don't always try and buy something right now. It might feel good immediately, but you also make sure that you've got a plan for the future. Okay. The next one really does make a lot of sense to me. The confirmation bias. We want confirmation. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and this, again, this, this spans not only through finance, but also just a lot of things that, yeah. that um, people do and, and, uh, the way they behave. This is a this is a cognitive process. This confirmation bias, and, and it's natural to all human beings. And, and basically, what it is 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 we we tend to naturally favor information that confirms a pre existing belief that mm -hmm. we have. Okay. Yeah. And like for instance, if if we know that we want to invest in a certain product or a certain company, we look for things that support that desire. It's it's not normal human behavior to look for things that go against that belief. Okay. Right. And so ultimately what happens if, if a person has this pre-existing notion or this idea or, or this concept is, is legitimate, they don't look for things naturally that, that don't support it. They, they find things that do support it. And that just basically that confirmation tends to lead them to think that that decision is the correct decision because they're only finding things that support it. And that's, uh, you know, that can be an issue sometimes. You got to look for the other pieces of information and not ignore them. Absolutely. And, and yeah. a lot of times that, that, that information that goes against or, or that doesn't support what your preconceived notion is, that tends to be very powerful information. And so you know, when I'm constructing portfolios where I'm perhaps 
looking at one investment, comparing it to a, a relatively similar investment, right? I, I try to strip out any confirmation bias. I tend to look at, all right, what's the pros and cons with each? You know, we try to find out how can that investment go wrong? And, right. and, we, and we look for the things that go against what we're thinking is going to happen. And, and that tends to help us make, again, mathematically driven, fundamentally driven uh, decisions for, for our clients. And so our takeaway here is it's important to be aware of this and just look at the, the facts that may go against our preconceived notions. You hit it. Yep. That's exactly it. It's just human tendency to go towards something that confirms it. We need to think and we need to, you know, get outside of our comfort zone and try to find things that go against our preconceived notions. And that rolls into this next bias anchoring. Tell me about this one. Yeah. So anchoring is, you know, again, to think about the analogy of an anchor, right? It holds the boat in place, right? And, and think of anchoring with regards to the psychology or, or the, the financial psychology is, is we often, focus too heavily on one piece of information that keeps us where we are when we're, when we're making our decisions. And, and typically our, our emotions, they, they play a disproportionately higher weighting on a particular decision or a concept, and that tends to lead to investment decisions. And an example, the best example I could give of anchoring is when someone buys a stock, all right? And the stock's going up and down, up and down. But people anchor on the recent high, Meaning if, if let's just hypothetically throw in a, an example here, um, let's just say the stock, they bought it at, at 50. Okay. So they're going to anchor initially on that 50. That's their, that's just emotionally. That's what, what number they're going to think about at all sure. times. Yeah. Let's say that stock, you know, it just went through the roof. It, it doubled. It went to a hundred. Well, now they're going to anchor on that recent high. They're just going to think about a hundred. They're, they're going to forget about 50. Well, let's say that stock goes down. Let's say it's at 80. A lot of times people will say, well, I'm not selling it. You know, I know I've made 30 bucks a share still at 80, uh -oh. yeah. but I'm anchored on a hundred and I'm not going to consider selling it until that stock gets back to that hundred dollar share price. I'm going to wait for it to get back to 100 before I sell it. And then it's going it, to get back to hundred and they're going to sit down and say, it'll go to 110. I see it all the time, right? <laughs> you know, people, when you're dealing with stocks and trading, I always try to tell a client, we, we have to put math in place. We have to put stops or, or limits in place that basically it takes the emotion out of it. You're, you're putting a game plan for that stock or any investment, really. When you're buying it, you say that if it's going to get to this price, we're selling it. If it's going to drop to this price, we're selling it. And, and you're, you're no longer emotionally tied to the day-to-day -day pricing. But we see it all the time, right? People are anchored on that 100 because it hit it at one point. And yeah. people always think that it's going to go back to that. When in reality, selling it at 80 could be a very great investment decision. Um, and so anchoring, it, it, or, or sometimes it's called benchmarking, right? This generally skews decision-making processes because it's, you know, the anchor on that price, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Really, it's 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 an emotionally charged number. It's it's an emotionally charged piece of information, but it's at the forefront of of the decision making process for most people, and it's it's just not fundamental analysis. So the takeaway there again is to try and strip out the emotion and and put math in its place. And then we've got one more bias here to talk about before we wrap this up: home country bias. And I did not think of this one at all. Tell me about this. Yeah. So home country bias is, is, is where we tend to, uh, again, as human beings, this is natural, not only with finance, but just about anything, but we tend to favor companies or investments or strategies 
from our own home country or our region. Okay. Hmm. And, and if you think about it, the U.S., it, it makes up roughly half of, of the global market cap. Uh, but generally, especially for my clients and, you know, really anyone that I speak with, typically the U.S. investments are, are a much more broader. It's a larger percentage of their investor portfolios, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas half of the world um, has the GDP typically the U.S. percentage of a portfolio, I would say, is in that 70 to 80 range, maybe higher uh, as far as percentage of the overall portfolio. And so people tend to favor the companies and the investments that are from here. Um, they tend to invest in their own backyard, so to speak. And, and it's this isn't unusual. It's not surprising. It's this, is, this happens all over the world, right? So if you look at portfolios in Australia, ten, people tend to have more yeah. Australian yeah. companies in their portfolios than they do U.S. And so it's it's this is very um, common out there. And, and people have to understand, right, that the, the investable universe, it's so much larger than we perceive. But again, in reality, portfolios are, are usually disproportionately weighted towards domestic investments, investments from the country in which you reside. And that could end up, you know, leading to, to unbalanced portfolios. And, sure. and that's, again, going back to that diversification that we talked about earlier, it's important to have stuff from all over the place. And it's important to consider what else is out there beyond your backyard. You know, this is also to go kind of beyond your money, right? This is also why people tend to like the the football team or the baseball team from where they were born, right? It could be, could be a pretty terrible team one way or the other, right? But because they were from there and that's where they live, that's why they like the team. You know, it might be an irrational decision. If you think about it, if the team's no good, why would you... But, you know, people like the stuff that they're comfortable with that is based in their own backyard. And, and that kind of also filters into to finances as well. But as you say here, the takeaway for home country bias? It's just, it's important to be diversified, right? It's important to have things from different places. It's important to put money in different buckets, so to speak, and, and to recognize that you may want to put all of your money in, in the U.S., for example, because you're from here, but it might not be the best investment strategy for you. Okay. These are only some of the most popular and relevant investor biases that are present, but there are others. And it's important that you as an investor are at least aware that these exist. It's only natural as human beings to experience some of these cognitive or behavioral biases. Simply being aware of them could help you make better decisions for the long term. That's right, Patrice. And to that extent, whether you are entirely aware of your own cognitive or and behavior, behavioral biases, or if you have no idea what you're thinking or why you're thinking the way you are, it's always helpful to consult with professionals that are qualified to help you figure out what the appropriate investments and strategies are when it comes to your own wealth plan. There are so many components to a wealth plan and so many different products and investments and strategies that are out there that it's simply in your best interest to engage with a financial advisor before trying to do it on your own. Now, that said, if you or a loved one need some help or guidance with regards to your own personal wealth plan, or you're simply interested in learning more about me or my practice, just reach out. You can call 724-933-4446. That's my direct line. You could email me at michael.dukovic at rbc.com, and that's D-U-K-O-V-I-C-H, or you could visit my website at michaeldukovic.com. And on my website, you're going to find tons of information on a wide range of financial topics. Because again, after all, my goal is to educate, my goal is to inform, 
And my goal is to be top of mind for if and when questions come up down the line. I'm looking to work with people that understand that they shouldn't be doing it alone. People who value the plan and people that recognize that life's greatest returns are only realized when you invest beyond your money. So remember, it's your money, it's your life. Take control. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Your Money podcast with financial advisor, Mike Dukovich. Make sure you click the subscribe button now so you will be notified when new podcasts are released. If you want to know more about working with Mike, please call 724-933-4446 or visit michaeldukovich.com. It's your money. It's your life. Take control. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of RBC Wealth Management. All opinions and estimates constitute the speaker's judgment as of the date of this recording and are subject to change without notice and are provided in good faith but without legal responsibility. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. RBC Wealth Management does not provide tax or legal advice. All decisions regarding the tax or legal implications of your investment should be made in connection with your independent tax or legal advisor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Investment and insurance products offered through RBC Wealth Management are not insured by the FDIC or any other federal government agency, are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by a bank or any bank affiliate, and are subject to investment risks, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. RBC Wealth Management is a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, and SIPC.